Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, "This this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Today, we're going to talk about the novel coronavirus and evolution. All viruses mutate and evolve, and that includes SARS-CoV-2, the virus that produces COVID-19. The version of the virus that we saw when the pandemic first started this winter is slightly different from the version of the virus that has emerged today in 95% of the cases that we're seeing. But what does that tiny little single point difference mean? One amino acid. Is it something we should be concerned about? That is something that scientists are in the process of figuring out. Today, we're joined by one of those scientists. Neville Sanjana is a geneticist at the New York Genome Center and New York University. He has been researching and publishing about how the coronavirus is mutating. Neville, thank you so much for joining me. Let's start with the, call it the medium picture. Let's talk about the changes that we know have happened through mutation 
in the SARS-CoV-2 virus since the original version surfaced in Wuhan over the course of the spring? Sure. So I, I think there's several different changes that have been found in different patient populations. Like many RNA viruses, I think one thing that is important to know about SARS-CoV-2 is it doesn't stay the same. It, it does mutate. There's elements of how the virus replicates, where errors can be made during RNA transcription, and those errors can get packaged into new viruses and then propagated. Most of the time, most of those errors, changes, or variants or mutations probably have very little effect. But occasionally you have changes that really do have some functional impact on the virus. So one of the mutations, a single point mutation that you've been working on and that's gotten a fair amount of coverage, not as much perhaps as it ought, is a mutation at the 614th place in the genome of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Tell us about that one and tell us how it's moved through the population. Right, yeah. So the mutation that's in the spike protein, so spike is, is really amongst the coronavirus proteins, probably the most famous protein. So corona just means crown. And the reason that coronavirus has this name with crown in it is because the individual viral particles, the virions, are decorated with the spike protein that kind of sticks out and gives it this crown-like appearance. So just out of curiosity, because I've been wondering about this, it's called the spike protein because it literally spikes up and a number of spikes make the crown. It looks, yeah, it looks like a spike, yeah. It's, it's by far the most distinguishable feature of any pictures we've seen of the virus. So the spike protein, the RNA port encodes a protein, and that protein has uh, thousands of amino acids. In the 614th position is this mutation that we've started to focus on. And the reason that we um, started to think about this is totally accidental. My lab works on CRISPR and gene editing, we were very interested in using those tools to understand what are the host genes, what are the human genes that are essential for viral entry. And by figuring out which are the essential genes for viral entry, we were hoping that we could find ways to maybe block some of those genes or suppress the activity of some of those genes. And by doing that, protect people from the virus entering. And this was just one of these accidents in science. You often hear about science that when you tell the story of science, it's like super linear. But when you're actually doing science, it actually is, is not so linear. There's, you know, twists and turns and different paths, sometimes dead ends. And so with the what we were trying to do in the lab to understand what are the host proteins that are required for viral entry, we started using a very safe virus that we use in the lab. And all we did was we attached to it the spike protein on the outside of that virus from SARS-CoV-2. Because we know that the spike protein, because it spikes out, is the first point of contact between human cells and the coronavirus. And what we found actually was something pretty sad, which was that we were really barely able to get any cells infected with this virus that we had put the spike protein on. And so at that time in April, we had started to hear about this mutation that was circulating in the population and looked like it was increasing. It had come about sometime maybe in early February likely in Europe, based on the best viral population genomics work with sequencing viruses. And it looked like very rapidly after it kind of emerged in early February that it started to take over kind of the world populations. And that's true up to today, where it's greater than 95% of the circulating coronavirus today seems to be carrying this, this spike mutation. So new in February, but now here in July, it really seems to be quite dominant. So we thought, okay, let's 
modify the spike protein that we have in the lab. Let's just insert this little mutation that seems to be dominating. This is back in April we did this. And let's give it a try in the lab. And what we found was, indeed, it solved our problem. Our problem is we couldn't get the virus, our kind of safe virus, the pseudovirus that we had decorated with the spike protein. We couldn't get it to enter our human cells. But when we changed it to have this mutation, we were able to see it enter much, much better, five to 10 times better. And we thought, great, we've solved our technical problem we had here in the lab. And then a day or two later, we started to think about this and we said, wait a minute, this is pretty important. Maybe instead of just running on from this technical problem, we should, maybe we should report this. Maybe we should tell people like, look, this is, this is a functional change in how the virus infects human cells. There are many fascinating things in the story you just told, and I want to just break them down a bit at a time. So let's start with the kind of astonishing fact that in January, when the first sequencing of the SARS-CoV-2 genome began, almost none and maybe none of the viruses that were sequenced had this mutation at place 614. By March, the number was noticeable. By April, it was sufficiently noticeable that your lab was thinking, let's try it out. By May, it was in 70% of reported cases. And now it's at 95%. So the first question I want to ask is, does this count as strong evidence to you as, among other things, a geneticist, that there must be some adaptive feature of this change? Or is there some way that this could have happened without this particular mutation helping the virus to replicate more successfully? Yeah, so I, I think scientists are naturally very careful. So when we got this first functional data in late April, early May, we weren't sure whether to believe it. And one of the great things about science during the COVID era is that there's been a lot of sharing and very rapid sharing of new results. And in May, what we saw were lots of different groups studying the viral genomics and the evolution of viral sampling through the world. And there was really quite a dichotomy of views. There were folks who thought this is clear evidence of selection going on for the spike mutation. And then there was the completely opposing views, which is less so today, but was more then, where people thought maybe it's something about a founder effect. You know, if a country hasn't seen coronavirus before, but just the first introduction of coronavirus into that country happens to be the one that carries this variant. And then maybe the next introduction into that country happens a week later. Well, you know, exponential growth. So if you have a week of lead time, that can really result in a lot more uh, infections, especially because we know asymptomatic people can infect others. You know, I think sitting where we are right now, especially with all the functional data that's come out, there's about five or six different groups that have um, shown functional data similar to what we did here in the lab. I think it's pretty clear that this version of the virus is more transmissible. And it's not just laboratory experiments, but um, something that we do in, in our preprint is we look at data from Sheffield University in the UK and also the University of Washington in Seattle. So these are two totally different groups sampling different populations, UK population and US population. And they're, they're basically looking at data from the qPCR test, which is the test that involves the nasal swab. And qPCR just stands for quantitative polymerase chain reaction. It's actually quite a standard lab technique. And because it's got that Q in it, quantitative, it can actually detect how many viral copies they are in a particular nasal swab. And what's super consistent over the two sites is the difference between the people who have the D variant, 
or the G variant. These are the two different spike variants. The D is the original one, the G is the new one. And what both the sites find is that there is about a threefold increase in viral RNA detected in the nasal swabs of people with this new G variant. And that's consistent between Sheffield and the group in Seattle. And so to me, that that suggests, I mean, we can't say something about person to person transmission, but something that we can definitely say with that data is that perhaps within the body, and remember, the body is kind of a collection of cells, independent cells, where, you know, you can have cells that are infected and cells that are not, that are just fine. So perhaps within the body, there's greater infection, greater distribution of the virus among cells when they are carrying the spike variant. That sounds like it's a very powerful reason to think that the spike variant is superior with respect from the virus's perspective, inferior from our perspective, and that it is adaptive. Let's talk about the question of why it seems to be better at effectuating transmission. What is it about the crown that works better from the virus's perspective at latching on to your cells in the G variant compared to the D variant with which the virus began? That's a great question, yeah. So if it is more infectious, like we show in a few different cell types, why is it, what's, you know, how does this one amino acid change create such a big difference in infectivity? That's a great question. We have the exact same question. And so when you look at the structure of the protein, there's different functional domains across the length of the protein. Something that we noticed is that kind of the closest um, functional domain to where this mutation is, is the receptor binding domain. That's the thing that actually makes contact with the human receptor for coronavirus, which we think is a receptor called ACE2. So we said, okay, it's, it's not in the receptor binding domain, but it's very close to it. It's the closest kind of domain of the protein that has this well-defined function. So it must be that, right? It must be, you know, something that this mutation is doing. It's increasing its affinity for ACE2. It's just like, you know, if you're able to have kind of a tighter handshake, then that's going to increase infection versus somebody that just kind of waves from a distance, right? So we set about actually with some collaborators here at NYU to really to test this. And, you know, as is often the case in science, you know, you, you have some very strong hypothesis about here's what the data should look like. And, you know, reality comes and tells you, hey, you're wrong. And that's uh, exactly what, what happened here. You know, our hypothesis going into this was it was likely um, stronger binding to the receptor ACE2. We found that there was basically no difference between the purified spike or the spike variant with ACE2 binding. So this was definitely not the right answer. It's fascinating to hear about a hypothesis that doesn't pan out, and it, it helps the rest of the world to trust science, to realize that it's not that the scientists start with a hypothesis and then claim to prove it. Some things work, some things don't. That's part of the process. So what did you do next when you realized that the ACE2 wasn't the answer? You know, there are other aspects of what Spike, you know, which after all is just this little um, micro machine um, that helps the virus. It is not there just to, to have the handshake with the ACE2 receptor it performs a lot of other functions that are very important for the virus to actually enter and inject its genetic material into the human cell. The handshake is really just the first part. After that, the spike protein actually sheds kind of a piece of it and unveils this very hydrophobic piece, which is a way to say it's, it's fatty, it's made of lipids. And why is that important? Lipids like to stick to other lipids. And the membranes of our cells are all fats. And so basically by unveiling this hydrophobic piece, it can stick into the plasma membrane, the fatty lipid bilayer 
of our cells. And that way, fuse, basically make kind of this fusion between the viral membrane, which is also a lipid, and the cell membrane. But this little dance, you know, is well orchestrated. And so what we eventually did find is that one difference we could see between the variant, the mutant form of spike and the original form of spike is that this kind of processing that enables the protein to go through this dance that in the end unveils this piece that sticks into the host cell seems to be different between the wild type spike and the variant spike that it seems to be um, more resistant to certain kinds of premature unveiling, let's say, of this, this fatty region. And that actually might help it because if you think about it, these viral proteins, they don't just, you know, come out and start to infect cells. They're produced inside a cell that's already infected. And if the spike protein has to go through this kind of complicated dance where it changes its conformation a little bit, if that happens too early, it might be an irreversible change. It might not be able to become functional again. And so if that happens, say, in the, in the cell that produces the spike, then um, maybe that's too early. It really has to happen after it sees ACE2, it does the handshake with ACE2, and then it can kind of undergo this conformational change to stick itself into the membrane. And if that's happening too early, which is something that our data suggests, that might actually in, lead to um, virions that have spike on them, but the spike is not really functional. And perhaps what the mutant spike does is it just leads to more functional spike on the surface of the viruses. Neville, let's turn now to the bigger picture consequences of these really remarkable findings that you and your co-authors have, have contributed to making. When the ordinary person hears that possibly the new version of SARS-CoV-2 is five to 10 times better at transmitting itself than the old version, the natural thought is, oh boy, that's scary. So first question, is there any reason to think that an initial mutation of that sort would be an indicator that there could be future mutations that might similarly improve the transmission rate, that is, make it worse for us, better for the virus? Or is it the case that just because this was a random point mutation, there's just no reason to think that there would be some other random mutation that would make this an even better virus at transmitting itself? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I, I mean, the real answer is, of course, like many things COVID-related, we really don't know. I think based on this rapid evolution that we've seen just, you know, with months of this virus circulating, I think it certainly is not beyond, you know, a shadow of a doubt kind of possibility that there might be another mutation, maybe in the spike protein, maybe in some of the other 25 odd proteins that are in this virus that um, either leads to increased transmissibility or, um, you know, could lead to um, hopefully not, but some sort of increased lethality of the virus. And that, that sounds very scary. I don't think it has to be scary. I mean, one thing that is very great to see right now, which we certainly didn't have during the 1918, you know, flu pandemic, is the use of rapidly deployable genomics. Things like the work that I'm talking to you about today, where we've been able to very quickly functionally characterize the impact of some of these mutations. There's a large scientific community of people working on this right now. And I do think we can either react in real time to a lot of these mutations, at least understand what their functional impact is, or with the kinds of cool DNA synthesis technologies and RNA synthesis technologies that exist, we can actually make mutations and test them in a massively parallel way to kind of figure out, hey, what does this mutation do? What does that mutation do? And really fully characterize 
what's kind of a broad spectrum of, of what these proteins are capable of. And that way, maybe we can start to predict and already think about, well, how do we improve our vaccines? How do we improve our, our therapeutics? And this has been done before with highly mutating viruses. So this is not a crazy idea to suggest. Perhaps the most mutagenic RNA virus that everyone knows well is HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. That virus is, is tremendously mutagenic. And what was found in the mid, uh, in the early and mid nineties was that drugs that were seemingly effective against HIV didn't really work in the long term, meaning that the virus was able to evolve ways around the drugs. You know, the real breakthrough was in the late nineties, the development of what we now refer to as, as the cocktail, which was a few different attacks on the virus, three different drugs brought together. And it turns out that even though the virus is very good at, at mutating that RNA virus, the three drugs together proved to be kind of a knockout punch. And still to this day, 20 years plus after the development of the HIV cocktail, it is still effective. And so I think that provides a really nice roadmap. You know, I think it should inspire us that we've been able to lead with science. Let's talk then about vaccines and reinfection and what the practical consequences will be for those of this observed mutation. Let's start with reinfection. If you're in China, this may matter much more if you're in China than if you're in Europe or the United States, but you got the early version, and now here comes the mutated version back around. It comes back via Europe or the United States. I know there was concern initially in China that it might be that whatever immunity people have, and I realize we don't fully know how much immunity people have when they have been infected, but that whatever immunity people did have might no longer be sufficient to hold off this new mutation of the virus. Is there data on that yet, or do you have an intuitive sense, absent the data, what is likely to be the case with respect to reinfection of people who got it the first time? Yeah, there's not data um, from us, but there's data from several other groups that have now started to look either at therapeutic antibodies that are being tested or antibodies isolated from patients who have had a COVID-19 disease course. What they found is that many of these antibodies target, say, for instance, that ACE2 binding domain, which is the part of spike that's kind of on the farthest away from the virus. It's on the surface, really, of the virus. And so um, the good news is, again, because the mutation doesn't really seem to alter that receptor binding domain so much, that most of those antibodies still are very effective against the mutant spikes. So that suggests that this one mutation probably doesn't wipe out that kind of immunity. And just so I understand, is that because you did a great job of describing the two-part process of how the virus gets you? First, it shakes hands, and then it's in the door, and then it you know takes off its hat or something like that, or its mask, and you know reveals the fatty lipid bind to you, and then you're stuck. Are you saying that the reason that the antibodies are likely to work nevertheless is that they primarily target the initial handshake? And as you showed in your initial lab efforts, there's not actually a major change in the nature of the handshake derived from this mutation. It's the later part. It's the taking off the mask. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's exactly the case. Let's talk about vaccines in that case. Sure. So obviously, some of the vaccines seek to replicate precisely the antibodies that occur naturally, but there are also different kinds of vaccines that are being experimented with now. There are these so-called Trojan horse vaccines, like the Oxford approach. There's the RNA vaccine, like the Moderna approach. What does the evolution in the virus suggest with respect to those vaccines? Would those also be just as effective on the earlier version as the late version, or is it trickier than that? Yeah, I, I think the implication for vaccines is something that, that definitely merits some research. So there's about 130 or so vaccines under various, in various stages of clinical development right now. 
in terms of how we think about virus manufacturing, um, one thing that I think was really impressive was how quickly some of these, especially the nucleic acid-based vaccines, the DNA and the RNA vaccines, how quickly we can go from sequencing the virus, you know, the first coronavirus sequence that was released in in January, to having a, a vaccine ready to go, which was also in January, as you mentioned, with, with Moderna. And so what might be more important than than being too worried about is this vaccine out of date? Has it kept up with all the newest spike mutations? Is to think, how can we develop a process or a pipeline where we can quickly capture population genomic data? And I mean, circulating viral data, sequence the genomes quickly, and then quickly update the vaccines to take into account new restraints. And this kind of uh, whatever you want to call it, like tightly closed loop sort of system or something like that, you know, that's really that could be a powerful process that doesn't just protect against this spike variant but perhaps any any future spike variants we might be worried about. Are there any general lessons from other viruses and the course of their mutations that are relevant to us here? Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, HIV is a great example because enormous resources were dedicated starting in the late 80s onwards to fighting HIV. And there, it still took more than 10 years to have a truly effective therapy. So that's, I mean, that's one thing to say, but we did end up with an effective therapy. Another reason why HIV, I think, is a particularly good example is because, as some folks might know, there has been a long, decades-long quest for a vaccine for HIV. But today, even though there's many promising candidates, kind of better time now than ever before, we still don't have an approved vaccine. This is a virus where we've known about it since the 80s. So that's, you know, to me, that that's kind of a scary thing, right, that we can expend tremendous effort and many years, and it still can be difficult to have vaccines. Now, that's um, one case. There are other cases where vaccines have been developed in much uh, shorter periods of time, just a few years. Here, I mean, we really do have the whole world focused on this. So I'm, you know, I'm all for these optimistic estimates that we hear from, you know, respected uh, infectious disease uh, doctors like Dr. Fauci and others of, you know, six months to a year. And I, I certainly hope that that's the case. I mean, we all want our lives to go back to normal. But um, I think it's important with the historical perspective we have to say that, you know, developing safe, effective therapies, safe, effective vaccines, it's not easy. And I'm only hopeful that there's so much effort going into it right now that it will greatly accelerate those efforts. Well, thank you for the work that you're doing and for explaining why we should be concerned about the mutation and why we should also recognize that it's not necessarily the end of the world. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. To me, it's a rather remarkable fact that we can see in real time how the SARS-CoV-2 virus has been evolving. The fact that the variation at place 614 was not visible almost at all in January, in February, was noticeable in March, was really noticeable in April, was at 70% in May and is now at 95%, provides significant reason to think that it's actually doing something to help the virus transmit itself. Neville and his group have suggested that by improving the spike protein, the new version may be five to 10 times better at transmitting the virus than the version that existed before. And they've made significant progress in trying to figure out where and why that is happening. The consequences of this development are significant and they're also subtle. On the one hand, Neville says, we shouldn't assume that just because there's been one mutation that made the disease easier to spread, 
that there will be others. There might be, there might not be. On the other hand, he says, sometimes the reality is that we do get rapid evolution in a virus in a way that makes it difficult to contain the virus with a vaccine. The upshot is that we need to watch the development of this virus quickly. The good news is we can now do that. The speed and cheapness of sequencing genomes now makes it possible in almost real time to track what's happening in a virus. Never before in the history of pandemics has it been possible to keep as close an eye on the genetic variation and evolutionary pressures that are taking place within a disease as it spreads. The worrisome bit is that no matter how much science we have and no matter how sophisticated we are at understanding what's happening, we don't necessarily have all the tools to solve the problem. We're going to continue to watch this story. If the virus evolves more, you can be sure that we will talk about it right here on Deep Background. We'll be right back. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like this is this is not right how can a person get killed and no one knows anything I'm Jake Halpern and this is Deep Cover The Nameless Man listen wherever you get your podcasts and if you want to hear the entire season right now ad free subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus 
Welcome to this week's playback. Hi, this is Anne with the warranty department. Our records show that your vehicle warranty has expired or is about to expire. That is a sound that no one likes to hear. The sound of a robocall reaching you on your mobile phone. The Supreme Court weighed in on the robocall issue this past week. In a case where Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote, Americans passionately disagree about many things, but they are largely united in their disdain for robocalls. The Supreme Court struck down a 2015 law that made an exception from the general ban on robocalls to your cell phone for collection of debts that are backed by the government, which would include, for example, your student loans. On the surface, nothing could sound more straightforward. How great that the Supreme Court, in the exercise of its infinite wisdom, has protected us further from robocalls. But that's not really what was going on. What was actually happening at the Supreme Court was an intense fight between the court's conservatives and the court's liberals about what standard they should use to analyze questions about the freedom of speech. The conservatives want to use the highest standard called strict scrutiny, where the court almost always strikes down a law that is seen to implicate free speech. And the liberals are concerned that the conservatives are going to use free speech doctrine to overturn progressive regulation on things like food and drug regulation, workplace safety, or the regulation of the sale of securities on the stock market. To understand what was really going on beneath the service in the robocall case, you need 30 seconds on the constitutional law of free speech. Historically, the Supreme Court applied its toughest level of scrutiny to laws that seemed to treat different statements differently from each other based on the ideas expressed in them. Sometimes the court called that viewpoint discrimination. That is, a law that treats two people differently based on their viewpoint. Perhaps one is a Republican and one is a Democrat, and the law treats them differently. Under those circumstances, the court always said, we're going to look at this law very carefully, and we're almost certainly going to strike it down. That all changed a few years ago in a case called Reed against the Town of Gilbert, when Justice Clarence Thomas wrote an opinion saying that strict scrutiny should apply whenever a law differentiated between different kinds of expression based on their content not based on the ideas they expressed, but just based on their content at all. In the robocall case, the Supreme Court relied on exactly that idea. The court held that what was wrong with the government giving an exception to the robocall ban for government-backed debt collection is that to do so, it had to ask, what is the robocall about? The minute you're asking what the robocall is about, said the court, you're looking at the content of expression. And any law, the court said, that looks at the content of expression automatically gets strict scrutiny and gets struck down. Writing in dissent, Justice Stephen Breyer forcefully expressed his serious worry that applying that kind of content-based analysis to government regulations about speech could end up invalidating the laws that tell companies, you must disclose what's in your product. You must tell the truth about your securities offerings. You must provide workplace warnings to workers so that they know what the dangers are that are facing them. In all of those instances, Breyer pointed out, the rule in question regulates content. It says that certain things must be said and other things must not be said. Breyer is worried that the conservatives are going to use this very idea that all content-based rules deserve strict scrutiny to chip away and maybe go all in and strike down huge swaths of government regulation. All of this may sound to you pretty far from robocalls. But you know what? That's often how things happen at the Supreme Court. 
On the surface, a decision that seems to touch on something relatively minor, the irritation of robocalls, and that seems to give you a good result. Meanwhile, beneath the surface, a long-run battle between conservatives and liberals for the future of our country and how government is allowed to operate under the constraints of our Constitution. There are going to be several more Supreme Court decisions in the next week or two, which are likely to be high-profile and significant. We'll come back to those in a future playback. Until next time, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott, with mastering by Jason Gambrell and Martin Gonzalez. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. I also write a regular column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And one last thing. I just wrote a book called The Arab Winter, A Tragedy. I would be delighted if you checked it out. If you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. You can always let me know what you think on Twitter. My handle is Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover the Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.